you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How have 3D printed prosthetics benefited from the press around 3D printed guns? Do I have to be a technical whiz to start a makerspace? Would John Wayne have been a great inventor? Listen in to discover the answers to these and other burning questions. Happy Holidays, Innovation Nation! I am so in the holiday spirit. I love this time of year. We got a great gift on our iTunes page this week. Colt Alton left us a great review. Colt says, This is a wonderful podcast for educators and innovators alike. Excellent production value and insightful dialogue from dedicated thought leaders and innovators within the education field. Thank you, Colt, for the high praise. If you too would like us to give you a shout out on the podcast, stop by the Tabletop Inventing page in iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If we've earned five stars, let us know why. If we haven't, we'd also appreciate your honest feedback. On today's episode, we're going to start right off with our interview. So be sure to stay tuned for today's great inventor secrets because we are going to find out if John Wayne would be a great inventor. So without further ado, Let's chat with Ian Roy. So my guest today is Ian Roy from Brandeis University. And uh, Ian is currently uh, managing a makerspace there at Brandeis. Uh, Ian, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do there at the makerspace and a little bit about what you do other places. Okay, so uh, we are about six months into building a maker community locally. We started around May just before the summer, so we've had a semester and almost another semester of development. My day job at Brandeis is to work with research labs. I'm the research technology project lead. So uh, anyone who's a researcher who has a technical hurdle that doesn't make sense for normal tech support, they can come to me and we help them uh, building systems, buying systems, uh, little parts and pieces, whole workflow analysis, basically. And the Maker Lab came about. Uh, there's three of us that work as a kind of a skunk works team. Uh, to launch it, and I bring the researchers. I have a colleague, uh, Deb Sarlin, who brings the faculty. Uh, so she does more classroom uh, pedagogy kind of workflow. And then we have a colleague, uh, Tim Hebert, who does embedded systems. And he's a uh, systems administrator in the classroom group. And he's just had got a degree in embedded systems design. So we have kind of a solderer, a, uh, a pedagogy person, and a researcher who all work together to make this work. Now, did I catch you saying earlier that none of you is currently an engineer? That's correct. Actually, not only are none of us, I, I think Tim might consider himself an engineer, <laughs> but locally we do not have an engineering program, so there is not the same focus on uh, tool use that you would see in an engineering program. So we have some interesting local spins on our makerspace because it is a research university, uh, but a, a liberal arts research university with no uh, engineering program. So what, what kinds of things, to elaborate on that a little bit. So uh, we don't presume that anyone comes into the space knowing how to, 
to solder or even necessarily what soldering is or knowing what code is or knowing how to operate a machine. So we take more of um, making the technology accessible and approachable for laymen all the way up to if you're a full researcher who really needs to do a specific thing, we can enable you to get some consultation on that specific thing. But it's a much broader uh, tool use sense and we're a social justice institution. So there's always a look at the local community or your local community or where you're from and how you can enable your community to do something cool with technology. So the first project that really sparked the community's interest was the Enable Prosthetic Hands. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Why don't you share with our listeners how you came across that and what some of the things are that you guys have learned about that? So interestingly, I found it um, on Thingiverse. I found the, the prosthetics as one of the popular categories you can download and immediately begin making yourself at home. Uh, interestingly, uh, those ads hit me on Thingiverse right when they posted them as a response to the 3D printed guns. So if you've watched the, uh, the documentary on Netflix, they talk about this, but uh, 3D printed gun became a popular news item uh, a little over uh, a year ago, I think it was 2013 around May. And in response, Thingiverse put all over their site the uh, Cyborg Beast Enable Prosthetic Hand to change the conversation into a, these are not dangerous machines, there is a positive social value to them. So I got hit by that propaganda. And it was interesting that if people hadn't been making guns, I wouldn't have heard about making prosthetics. So I kind of knew about it as a thing through the news, and I had looked at some files. But it wasn't until I went to MakerCon in San Francisco, the first MakerCon in May this year. And uh, there I met the people from Enable. They had a session. They passed around their hands. And really getting to play with one of them and see how they function and really get that this is something that is accessible to me and to a lot of people. You can just immediately start making them. Uh, so I came back from that conference, and I borrowed a printer from our printing club. And I was home for 62 hours that weekend, I think, and I ran 60 hours of prints on that hand. And then that week, I got my first hand moving. And now this semester, we're trying to teach a lot of people the Enable platform. So they have about 10 models of hands available on their site, and they all have slightly different uses. But even within that, you know, we, we tell people about prosthetics. And here at a social justice liberal arts environment, the first thing is, can we make feet for people? Can we make can we make hands for dogs? Can we make feet for cats? Like, so they, they, they start pulling out of parallels. So a lot of what we do is scoping and explaining like what the market's like and why it's like that. So Enable is not a platform that you're going to want to necessarily compete with because they've spent many thousands of human hours throwing research into that. And there's a couple hundred sites around the world where if you need a hand and you can get there, you can make it, they'll make you a hand custom that will fit you that does not cost you anything that competes with a $40,000 prosthetic. So that's it's pretty amazing technology. And really, I think where, we're, where Brandeis has a chance to innovate in this, we're not going to create a new hardware platform for any of this. But we might see a use case where we can modify the finger shapes for a particular task. Like if I was uh, missing a hand, I would want a couple dozen prosthetics that I could choose from based on the task I wanted to do. And I think there's a lot of room for innovation in finger shapes, finger types, tuning, a lot of it making the fingers work in a natural way. Um, Maybe material differences, yep. uh, tacky fingers versus smooth fingers. Yep, definitely. So all of that, I think, that we'll be able to participate in locally. So, so this semester, we're, uh, everybody from the club, we have about 50 or 60 active members. And in the hand project, we probably have 20 to 30 people who are interested in making a hand. Uh, this semester, we're getting all of them access to a full set of hand gear so they can assemble their own hand as a prototype and get really familiar with the materials, 
uh, that they have to locate and <laughs> put into it, and then slicing it and designing it so that they get a, like a personal touch on how it works. And really, I'd like them to make a hand that can fit them that they can use themselves as a first step. Once we have a community of practice where we can iterate functional good hands, then we have a local children's hospital that we're going to try to make an ask to do something where we could actually make hands for people who need hands. Excellent. Well, like I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, we've got a, a small group of kids that uh, would be very interested in partnering with you a little bit on that. So we'll definitely be in touch on on that side. So what are some of the other projects that you guys have uh, taken on in the makerspace or that you've seen students or clubs uh, yep. take on in the makerspace? Uh, so there, there's a huge variety of them, and I can just talk about a couple really quick that I found really interesting. So the, the first one that, that came to us from a researcher that was really achievable, uh, there was a group that was doing uh, research with rats, and they needed to put a cable into the rat's brain, and they needed a bracket to stop the cable from pulling out. So it's a kind of a gross research science topic. But if you think about it, they're doing it anyways. They're putting wires in brain, rat brains anyways. And this is a way to alleviate some of the suffering of the rat by making it more stable and not annoy them as much. <laughs> so they came to us. Somebody else had already printed this file elsewhere. Somebody had given them the STL. They had the STL. But they gave it to us, and it was about half the size of a penny, the thing they needed to print. And we had been scaling up, 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 up with all of our designs. And this was the first one where, no, now we want you to print something where the print head is going to be hot and touching the object the entire time. So that was an interesting, uh, I mean, if you've operated a 3D printer for a while, this is a challenge you end up encountering and having to deal with. So that, that was a good way for us to have that challenge. And we ended up with the, within, within 24 hours, we had a really great bracket they could use, and we made a bunch of them. Wow. Uh, so that, that, that's kind of a cool example. Another one. So we got into these hands, and we've been making a lot of them, and we haven't made one for a person yet, but uh, along the way we had one lab come through that does uh, human-machine interactions, and they were doing a, a setup where you do a handshake with a stick. You just grasp a stick and do the motion of a handshake, and it records all of the vector information about the path that your hand is taking and what you're doing to the stick. And they were trying to do some data about what a handshake really is. Uh, so what, what we did was we showed them our enable prosthetics, and they said, wow, that's really cool. Wouldn't it be great if we could do this with a hand? And we found another public hand on Thingiverse, uh, FlexiHand 2, which is very similar. It uses the same channels to, to work in the similar logic to how the enable works, but the fingers are, uh, the rubber bands are NinjaFlex gaps instead of being a tension system, so it's a slightly different design. Uh, so it's, I think it's a less practical hand. Like I don't feel like I could pick up things with it as well. Uh, however, as grasping it, it feels much more like a human-shaped hand. So that was a great starting point. So we printed one of those off, and we strapped it onto the stick. And then we wired the strings back into servos so that it could close with a computer servo instead of with a, like a lever action from a human hand. And now they have, a, they have a stick that can grasp you, grasp you back when you start to shake it. So it's a totally different approach from the experiment. And what we'd love to do, we, we now have a second one we've made that we made in NinjaFlex. So this was a very long print. Just the palm was like a 50-hour print because <laughs> it prints so much slower. Uh, and there were some problems there where printing the fingers, you can't print with support material with flexible filament very easily because it'll bond to it. It becomes one object, and you'll never get a clean separation. So we actually paused our fingers as they were printing and put pieces of PVA glue built up for them to platform on when 
they had a shape change. So that was kind of a brute force technique to get the print to come out, but we got it and it was very reproducible. So we started with a, a solid plastic hand, then we turned it into a gooey, squishy hand. We're about to deliver that model. Our hope for the future is to iterate again, redesign the file with an internal framework, print the internal bone structure in PLA, have ninja flex around that. So when you grasp the hand, you feel a bone structure underneath. And what this group wants to do, this is not my, we just enable these projects, but their whole hope with their project is they want to beat the Turing test for the handshake. And I think it's with this technology, this is a pretty good avenue. They, they said they had a conference a couple years ago where people showed up with hands trying to beat the Turing test. And before the 3D print materials had really gotten there, this was not something people could do readily in a weekend. Yeah, I should probably stop. There are going to be a few people in our audience that aren't familiar with the Turing test. Oh, yes. For, for those who aren't familiar with the Turing test, uh, Turing is the last name of a, a gentleman who... Uh, talked about the idea of putting together a program that could simulate a human well enough that you couldn't tell the difference between a human and the machine. And so a Turing test is a test that uh, describes whether or not a machine can fool another human into thinking it's a human. Yep, exactly. All right, sorry about that uh, little interjection there. Um, so those are sort of two great examples of research projects on our printers. I can throw out two more examples to cover some other areas in the lab. Uh, we have another person in, in a spatial orientation lab who is working on Unity development. So we have a couple Oculuses and we have some Google, Google Cardboards and you can code in Unity and export it to either environment. You can also export it to any kind of mo any device, Mac, PC, Linux, iOS, Android. It's really cool. You build one environment, there's just an export button to make it run anywhere. And what we'd love to do is bring some of the experiments the researcher is doing into the virtual space particularly social, social neuro maybe, where uh, you're doing interactions between a human and avatars in a room. And the current Oculus does not have eye tracking. However, we hear that when the consumer version comes out, it, it probably will. And there are other sets that they have that are much more expensive that do human eye tracking. But if you put someone in a room with avatars, you get a data set about where the body moves, about how close they get to other humans. But you also, when you put eye tracking in, you get a huge data set about their actual social interactions. It's very hard to gather in a real environment. So that's a pretty cool use case. We can start building, we can move an experiment from reality to virtual reality. And a lot of these, they do their uh, experiments in a black box room where they make it as simple and dark other than the screen you're looking at as can be. And even just that, if we could immediately just export the content from that screen to a square on a headset, that's a win for those people. Wow, that's that's amazing. Well, let me let me transition here because we're uh, we are running a little short on time, and I want to get down to the core of uh, what we normally ask, uh, because our our listeners are mostly educators, and they're they're curious about how the maker movement fits into the overall topic of education. Absolutely. And the question we usually get to in the podcast at some point is, what is the purpose of an education? So from your perspective, you know, being in a makerspace, being in a liberal uh, arts university that is still a research university, what is the purpose of an education? Well, I mean, I, I really think that all of this is just about making people happy. It's about increasing human happiness. And in this context, it's really about access to tools and sharing tool knowledge and tool use. So our goals are really around enabling individuals to have access to 
a thing that they didn't even know that their work is going to change so much when they have access to that thing. So in so in your context, you are uh, in you're creating an environment where people can explore on their own. Is We're also increasing their possibility, maybe giving them a lever for possibility. Okay, I see. I see. So augmenting their current abilities as well. Yep. And a lot of times we have we see people come to us who kind of have an idea about what they're going to do here or what they're going to do with their careers or projects they want to work on. And when we show them the actual tool set and what they can do with it today, they go crazy because they're, they didn't realize how accessible it was and how it, they can really get access to it. All right. So thinking back to your comment about uh, Brandeis being uh, very concerned about social justice, let's broaden this out a little bit. So in the context of what you've seen in your makerspace, if these ideas spilled out a little further into the education system, mm-hmm. what kinds of things might we expect to happen in the education system, do you think? I'm asking you to look in the crystal ball. Uh, well, I don't. So I, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, as much about pedagogy. I don't talk about in my daily uh, technology access. That's not the part of the conversation I'm involved in as much. So researchers and classroom have very different needs and wants, where a researcher just wants the product and they want to run with it. And classroom requires a fair amount more structure and politics (laughs) that I'm less familiar with. Uh, However, for me, there's certainly an element of personalization and uh, getting people involved in a conversation. So it's, it's unique to you, but then you need other people around you to share it. So I think to answer your question, there needs to be more hands-on use of tools and more spaces where, where there's not a hierarchy, where everyone in the room, it's a, it's a flat hierarchy. We all have different things we bring that are shareable. I really like the ask the room way of teaching or learning stuff where you're all in a room working on different projects and you're all kind of in your own zone. But when you get stumped, you ask the room and there's other experts in other fields that you can share that with. And, and for me, it's, it, I think that with learning this stuff, you, you kind of need an ask the room model. I can't disagree with that. We have, uh, we've certainly experienced that where students uh, spend a lot of time helping each other and, and they actually feel quite excited to share the knowledge they have. They feel yeah. very empowered and very um, confident and strong, you know, personally after they've done that. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of advantages to putting uh, hands-on maker type education, you know, into, you know, a, a normal school environment and I, I love the idea of having students have more free access to pursue the things they're interested in because we spend so much time in education prescribing what it is that yep. they need to learn along the way and we there's and so the free time that students have tends to be used more for entertainment um, yep. rather than maybe some form of self-actualization because entertainment is yep. really more of a shut the brain off type of activity whereas you know, helping someone or learning a skill or doing something that you want for your own reasons is more actualizing personally. What what experience do you have um, observing those two types of learning? Maybe even you know, maybe even your personal experience. Well, uh, for, for I, I did not do very well in a classroom setting. <laughs> uh, I went to Brandeis ten years ago. Uh, I did triple major here, and I did run two clubs, uh, which is pretty normal for everybody who comes through here. But um. I did much better in a seminar setting with under 20 people where you are kind of participating in a conversation. I think a lot of this, um, this new maker tool set, there is not a manual. And if there is a manual, it's a, it's a community. It's a forum. <laughs> There's a, 
not as much direct asking because with you know 500 companies selling desktop 3D printers even there's too much hardware for for everybody to know everything about everything even in just that one little niche in the maker movement so I do think that you do and more and more with technology in all ways you, you can't learn a single process where you just do that process over and over again what what people who get really good at this learn is a way to learn they have an approach to tool use and it's all tools they use like that and there's definitely an aspect of smaller groups doesn't scale the larger groups and more personal, more individualized reason to use it and tool set that you actually build up. Because even within our, our community here, every person has a very different selection of what they know how to use from the tool set. And that's all based on their personal style and what they want to accomplish with it. And, and I don't think that scales to lecture-sized learning for this kind of stuff. Like, I think you could learn, like, what FDM is and SLA and SLS and get like an industry overview, but I don't think you could drill down into the operation of actually teching a print even uh, in, a, in a large scenario. Like you really have to have a printer that you're operating yourself. So I hadn't thought of exactly the way you mentioned it, but I love the way you put that, that every person learns a, learns how to learn in some way and they bring that tools that they, they bring that way of thinking to each tool and approach the tool sort of in the same way there yeah that's that's really interesting Ian thank you so much for sharing these insights thank you so much for having me it was wonderful to meet you guys uh, at a 3d printing conference and I'm really glad that you invited me on this well we'll definitely be getting back in touch with you because I have some more questions about the hands <laughs> because we'd like to, to try some of those things here but uh, in the meantime, uh, are you interested in, if anyone from our audience is uh, curious about getting in touch with you, or are you interested in sharing that information? Sure. If you want to uh, get in touch with me, the easiest way is just shoot me a, an email. My email address is ianroy at brandeis.edu, ianroy at brandeis. Excellent. Thank you, Ian. I really appreciate you taking this time, and uh, we'll be in touch soon because you guys are doing some fantastic things. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. And now, the moment you've been waiting for, the great inventor's secret of the week. I know that many of you are interested in tabletop inventing because you want to learn how to become a great inventor. And so we've decided to add a little section here every week to help you understand that inventing is not a mysterious process. Inventing is actually something that most people can do. There are lots of very doable things that you can learn to become a great inventor. So here's this week's secret. As Americans, we love the frontier cowboy approach to life. You know what I'm talking about. John Wayne riding in on his horse to save the day. In our culture, we've seen this scenario in hundreds of movies, cartoons, and advertisements featuring the hero who comes in to save the day. We love this idea that I can do it all by myself. But what happens in real life? In everyday life, rescue efforts rely on a dispatcher, a team of first responders such as fire and rescue, peace officers, and emergency room staff, nurses, and doctors. In that emergency room, there is indeed a doctor orchestrating the efforts. But without the anesthetists, nurses, and staff, many patients would simply die on the table because the response time would be too slow. 
every time we sit down to eat in a restaurant, we seem to forget that someone thoughtfully decorated the environment, someone planned the menu, someone considered the market so that we knew to come, someone ordered the supplies for the day and week, all before the hostess seated us, the waitress helped us order, and the kitchen staff prepared the culinary delights. Almost every aspect of our daily lives is a carefully orchestrated effort by a highly trained, sophisticated staff of professionals. Google search, breakfast cereal, hot water, even the humble cell phone in your pocket. Yet for some reason, these ideas are erased from our memory whenever we consider inventing something ourselves. We want to ride in on our horse into the lab or the garage or home office and invent the next Facebook. As some have said though, the recent research landscape actually requires the skills and expertise from a wide variety of disciplines. Collaboration and cross-fertilization of ideas actually reaches far back into the past. I mean, Einstein, using the experiments of Michelson and Morley as an inspiration, created his theory that light travels in the same speed in all observation frames. I mean, the wonders of modern electronics grew out of the efforts of James Clerk Maxwell, who collected an unwieldy set of 20 equations and 20 unknowns. But his students refined and integrated those equations until they fit neatly into four equations relating the electric and magnetic fields. Even Gutenberg, famous for creating the precursor to modern typography, adapted the screw press from another field, winemaking, thus creating a revolution of knowledge. But these ideas were all cross-fertilizations from one field to another or from one research lab to another. So here's this week's great inventor's secret. Draw inspiration, skills, ideas, and assistance from other inventors. In other words, collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. Let me share a couple of examples. We heard earlier in the podcast from Ian about the Enabling the Future site where inventors with 3D printers can connect with those in need of a prosthetic hand. I looked at the site. It's moving to say the least. I watched uh, one of the videos about Shay's hand and you can look this up in the link, this link up in the show notes for this week um, at Time mark 2 minutes and 48 seconds. Shay's mom describes this experience as a parent. And it just it stopped me in my tracks. I mean, the Enabling the Future team is changing the course of prosthetics. And it's affecting more than just the technology. It's changing people's lives. I mean, a hand that used to cost between $10,000 and $80,000 can be made for $50 in parts. That means the hands are now accessible because of the efforts of a team of inventors. I'll end this week's episode with one of the most moving sets of videos that you may ever see on collaboration. And it's coming, it, it comes from an unlikely source. If you have ever sung in a choir, this will just blow your mind. But even if you haven't, these videos will change how you think about collaboration. I mean, working together affects far more than just the simple outcome of the project. Collaboration connects, 
empowers and and changes lives here's what i saw the video choir 1.0 was posted to my page by a friend several years ago now i love ted videos and this is among my very favorite eric whitaker is a modern classical composer and conductor who secretly wanted to be a celebrity singer growing up but he was introduced to the magic and camaraderie of singing in large groups as a college student this eventually led to him becoming a composer and a conductor then a few years ago a fan of his music posted a video of herself singing one of his compositions well this sparked an idea in his mind and started a chain of events that eventually led to what I can only refer to as a magical experience as 185 singers from around the world uploaded videos of themselves singing to Eric's conductor video of a piece of music that he had composed. I can't do justice talking about it. You really need to look this up in the show notes and actually watch this video for yourself. I mean, it. the first time I saw this video, it actually brought me to tears. I mean, I've, I've sung in a choir, and um, I've uploaded videos to YouTube, but this, this is just, this is a completely new experience for me. I mean, I've, I've seen this video now a dozen or two times, but I, I'm still whisked away by the magic and the emotion that it brings on every time I see it. And Eric went on from Virtual Choir 1.0 to create Virtual Choir 2.0, with 2,000 singers from 58 countries. And then he did a virtual choir three with almost 4,000 singers from 73 countries. And then a virtual choir four with almost 6,000 singers from 101 countries. That's right, 6,000 people from more than half the countries in the world are singing in this video. You have to go to the show notes for this week's episode and watch these videos. They'll restore your faith in humanity. They can move you to tears. But whatever your response, remember this. Eric's little idea could never have happened without the first video from that brave young fan, the thousands of singers who have now participated, and the excellent video and audio editing talent of his team. Innovation happens in teams. Have you been enjoying the Tabletop Inventing Podcast? Have comments or questions you'd like us to address? Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? <music>